Last Sunday, our both services combined, we had over 50 people that either rededicated their life to Jesus or gave Jesus the, um, the, the, the made Jesus the Lord of their life for the very first time ever. So that was very exciting. Last Sunday, very, very exciting. Okay, so I hope you have your cell phones off. Unless it's your Bible, then you can mute it. I hope you got your real Bibles out. If you still own a real Bible, the kind that has the pages and that kind of thing, take notes. You can use an offering envelope, whatever it takes. You remember 70% more of what you write down than just what you see. Uh, we are on a series called Preparing for Eternity. Um, I ask that you be as, as careful as you can to keep the house of the Lord in order for the next 30 minutes. If you need for some reason to leave, you can leave out the back doors. And when you come back in, our wonderful usher will ask you to stay at the back until the sermon's completed, just so we don't distract anybody. Uh, so we're in a series called Preparing for Eternity. And before I get into the subtitle each week, what I've enjoyed doing is I've enjoyed giving you just a little five, seven-minute opening on our series itself. Uh, preparing for Eternity is about us gaining an eternal perspective. Uh, when you have an eternal perspective, you live life differently than people that have an 85-year perspective. Uh, when you have an eternal perspective, you spend money differently than people who have an 85-year perspective. Uh, when you have an eternal perspective, you can endure things that normal people could not endure because you know that you're going to live for all of eternity in heaven. Now, the first judgment is the judgment of faith. Grace gets you into heaven. Nothing you can do to get you into heaven but receive the grace of God, be in a relationship with Jesus. But the second judgment is judgment of works. Where you spend eternity is about your faith in Jesus or not. But how you spend eternity is about how you live this life on earth. When we have an eternal perspective, people with an eternal perspective, they can deal with cancer differently than people who think that you should just live to your 85 and you're done and that's it. People who have eternal perspective, they don't get offended as easy as people who just have an 85-year perspective. People who have an eternal perspective, they can endure things at work with a negative boss or somebody that's treating them bad or they, 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 Monday's an awful day. They don't really worry about those things that much because they know they're not going to be here till they're 80 or 85. They're going to be living for all of eternity, all infinity. I had somebody call me up a few days ago and they said, you know, a friend of mine was 20 years old and she passed away. What does God think about that? I said, what do you mean? They said, well, you know, you know, that she didn't live till she was 80 or 85 like, you know, a lot of people do. I said, God doesn't think much of it because if you take 20 and you divide it by infinity, you're going to get zero. If you take 40 and you divide it by infinity, you're going to get zero. If you take 150 years, if someone lives till they're 150 years old and you divide that by infinity, it still equals zero. It's still an infinite, it's still, it's, it's, you can't. So it's almost like if I said the next three hours of your life, is going to determine the next three million years. That's about equivalent to what I'm saying. One lifespan, whether you live to your 20, whether you live to your 80 or 120, is all the blink of an eye compared to all of eternity. So it's very important that we get this eternal perspective. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, throughout history, the Christians who did the most for the present world were those who thought most of the next world. But Christians who have become ineffective are those who stopped thinking about the next world. Do you know there are idiots all over the world who will blow themselves up and other people because they think they're going to get something in their next afterlife, okay? How easy is it to just kill yourself and be done? Take a bottle of pills, you're done, it's over. We as believers who know the truth, I'm not asking you to die for Jesus, I'm asking you to live for Jesus. 
The whole point of this series is to put a fire under us to cause us to push ourselves a little bit more, give a little bit more, encourage a little bit more, serve a little bit more because we know we're not just living for this present life, but all of eternity is affected by how we live right now. 2 John 1.8 says, do not lose those things which you worked for so that you may receive a full reward. Each sermon in this series, I like to open up with a, a verse about a reward. God is a rewarder. All through heaven, God wants to reward us. According to the scripture, there is a full reward scenario. But if there's a full reward scenario, that means there's also a partial reward scenario. If there's a partial reward scenario, that means you can get to heaven and there's also a zero reward scenario. Now, how would somebody get to heaven and have zero reward or partial reward? I'll tell you how. Uh, You're saved, you have a relationship with Jesus, but you don't serve him on earth. You sit at home in your underwear and watch church on TV. I don't know how people think. You ever talk to a believer and you invite him to church and they say, oh, no, no, I watch T.D. Jakes or whatever. How are you serving Jesus? How do you serve the body of Christ when you're sitting in your underwear watching church on TV? Now, nothing wrong with that. For those of you that are watching by internet right now or on Facebook, we love you. We appreciate you. If you're in your underwear, don't send us pictures. We're okay. But, you know, God loves you. We love you too. I didn't think about that point. I didn't think about us being, but anyway, um, <laughs> but you got to get in church and serve. It's, it, anybody can do that. It's hard to serve fallible people, to get to be around where you know you're going to get offended, but you got to let it go and forgive and love, respect. This is, the, this is serving Jesus. So you can get to heaven and have no reward. And I want solid rock. I want to get to heaven and see our church with full rewards. I don't know about the Methodist church down the street. I don't know about the Episcopal church down the street. I don't know about this church over here, but I want us to get full, everybody say full rewards. You don't want your spouse living in a mansion and you're living in a shack and oh, I'll be happy with just a shack in heaven. Let me tell you something about eternal rewards. Eternal rewards means there's no changes. It means there's no, there's no going up or down. Once you get to that second judgment and all your life on earth is seen by God and he goes over it with you, that's it. There's no changes to that. It's eternal. It's a full reward. God wants to reward us. I think about in Genesis 15, 1, God appeared to Abraham as, I am your shield, your exceeding great rewarder. Think about the first time God appeared to you. The first time he appeared to you, maybe you've been through a miracle, a healing. He appeared as the God of healer. You needed help, he healed you, and now you started getting your life in order and you give it to Jesus. Maybe he appeared to you as, as, as your protector. You got in a car wreck, it was amazing, you got through it, so now you're like, there has to be a God. Maybe he appeared to you the first time as wisdom. You come to church, hear a sermon, you're like, man, it just clicks. I just got wisdom. Maybe he appeared to you as you, the first time as your savior. The first time you had an encounter with God, he saved you. And, and, it's, and the, the first time he appeared to Abraham was, hey, man, I'm, I'm going to reward you. Abraham was like, I got to be in a relationship with this God. I mean, this God, he's a rewarder. He's a, you know, God is a God of incentives. Um, Micah works as a car saleswoman, and whenever she sells a certain amount of cars, she gets to spin this wheel of fortune, and whatever money it lands on, she gets extra bonuses. Imagine they go to all the car dealers or whatever area you're in, and they say, listen, everybody's going to make $500 a week, no matter how many cars you sell, no matter what your attitude's like, you can come in late, early, doesn't matter, we still pay you $500. How many of you know that most people would stop being faithful, stop being excellent, stop being diligent? God understands that we need incentives. That's why he says these internal rewards, they're big, they're huge, and they're forever. God is a God of incentives. He's a God who rewards. Now, you know God is Savior. You know God is rewarder. But here's one you might not like. God is also our judge. 
And whenever we get to heaven, after we go through the first judgment, the second judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, he's going to judge every single work we did. Let me tell you another way you can receive um, partial rewards when you get to heaven is if you sang in the choir and was an usher and gave in the offering and served the body of Christ, but you did it for the wrong reasons. You did it because you wanted to be seen or you wanted to be heard or you did it for what people thought of you and not because you were signed up with the vision of the church that you're a part of, not because you just love God and love people and you did it for the wrong reasons. So you did all these good things with the wrong motives and you got partial reward. That will stink. I would not want that to happen. I pray that I get a full reward. So what we're doing is with a series, I am trying to um, give you incentives each week to start thinking about eternity and not just what's going on in your life now. I'll tell you this, is a, is a, just personally from me to you, um, when you start thinking eternity, uh, it makes this life a lot easier. Because you can easily let things go that would normally bother you. You can easily forgive somebody. You know, it's no big deal. Man, I'm going to be living for all of eternity. And you might be in the house right next to me in heaven. So I'm going to let it go and love you anyway. So here's some incentives. So today's incentive is this. Part one was be productive. Part two was be real. Part three was be purposeful. Part four was be obedient. Today is part five. And that is this. Be generational. Be generational. For the next 25 minutes, I want to talk to you about how your life on earth is going to affect those who you leave behind. It is going to greatly affect those who come after you. Whether or not you fulfill your purpose, whether or not you serve God, it doesn't just affect your life. If you choose to give in the offering, it affects everybody in here. If you choose to be stingy, it affects everybody in here. If you choose to use your talents and gifts for God and to build the local body, it's going to affect everybody in here. If you choose to not use your gifts and talents for the local body, it's going to affect everybody in here. If you choose to live a life of obedience to God, it affects those that come after you for up to a thousand generations if Jesus tarries. No person lives or dies only unto himself. We never make a choice alone. With every decision you make, you are affecting the reputation of those who have gone before you, and you're paving a road for those who come after you. In our life and the way we live, it can either be stepping stones so that those that come after us can come up higher, have it easier, be more successful, or it can be stumbling blocks, causes people to fail. They don't have as much. They have to work harder. They have to have more blood, sweat, and tears to fulfill their purpose in life. Everything we do matters. Every choice we make matters. I can show you all kind of scientific proof where everything you do affects the entire world all the way around. Each person affects the entire world. How much more should our obedience to God affect not just our destiny but those who come after us? 1 Chronicles 17, 4, and 11, uh, David's heart was to build the temple. David's heart was to build the temple for God. The temple. I mean, this was going to be the, 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 the temple of all, the daddy of all Mac daddies. I mean, this temple was going to have everything for God you would imagine. And David was so excited, but God came to him and said, David, you shall not build me a house to dwell in. I'm going to raise up your son to build my house. Okay, this would be like if God came to Brian Clark back there at the back, the guy standing in front of the two double doors that will kill anybody that interrupts my sermon. If God came to Brian Clark and said, Brian, I'm going to give you a business idea. This business is going to touch millions of people all over the world. This business is going to affect the entire planet Earth. 
And he gives Brian the idea, and Brian goes out, and he starts getting everything ready. He finds the office space. He gets business cards made. He gets the, the permit that he needs. He goes to the city and does all the business license and everything. And he's so excited. It's about to launch, and he has the big ribbon there and the scissors, and he's about to cut the ribbon and open up the business. And God says, whoa, 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 whoa. You did all that work, and I'm very, very, very pleased. But I want your son, Chase, to be the one who runs the business. Brian and a lot of fathers, they would be very, very jealous. A lot of fathers think, nope, I'm doing this. This is my destiny. No, no, no. Brian would say, I would be thrilled for Chase to take over and go. That'd be like if God came to Chase and said, Chase, I'm going to give you a song. Man, people are going to sing this song in different languages, tribes, nations. They will love This song will minister to billions of people, touch the lives of believers and non-believers. And he gives Chase the song, and Chase goes in the studio, and he lays down the drum track and the bass, the guitars, the keyboard, the synthesizer, the backup vocals. He has the words written out for the lead vocal, and he walks in there to record the song so it can be on the radio all over the world. And just as he sings the first note, God says, Whoa! I want your daughter, Lily, to be the lead vocalist on this song. Chase says, nothing would please me more. David went to his son, Solomon, in 1 Chronicles 17, verse, where are we at next there? 1 Chronicles 22, 7 and 4, and he said, Solomon, I had intended to build a magnificent house of splendor for the Lord, but instead, I've provided a way for you to succeed. I prepared 100,000 talents of gold, silver, bronze. I provided stone cutters, masons, carpenters, and I commanded all the leaders of Israel to help you, my son. Here's what God was saying. Your destiny is bigger than just you. When you have an eternal perspective, you realize that your destiny and fulfilling it, when you get to heaven, if you look in Revelation, we can actually look down from heaven to earth and see what's going on like the martyrs did in Revelation 22. So when you get to heaven, don't you want to look down and see those who you leave behind having a better life because of you? I don't want those who I leave behind serving God in spite of me. I want them serving God because of me. I want them succeeding because of the life that I lived. Uh, you think, well, it's my life and I can do what I want to. It's my party and I can cry if I want to. It's my life and I can, if I, I can go to church if I want to. And if I don't want to go to church, I don't have to. It's my life and I'm going to give if I want to. And if I don't want to give, I'm not going to give. It's my life and I can just sit there like a knot on a log. I don't need to be a part of anything and help anybody else or encourage anybody. It's my life. I can do whatever I want to do with it. That is an incredibly selfish way to live because your life affects every person inside this room. It affects your children, your grandchildren, and those that come after you up to a thousand generations if Jesus tarries. If you um, ever heard of the, the famous chemist Alfred Nobel, he was a Swedish chemist. And Alfred invented dynamite and other explosives that were used in wars and for harmful purposes. But he made millions of dollars off of his dynamite and his inventions. One day his brother died and the newspaper thought Alfred died. And they printed Alfred's obituary instead of his brother's. So here he opens up the newspaper and he sees that he died. I mean, like, think about opening up the newspaper and you see your obituary in there. And he was described as the man who made a fortune off of killing people in mass unprecedented numbers. When Alfred read that, his heart sunk. He was so hurt. He didn't want to be remembered for that. So he took all of his fortune and he created something called the Nobel Peace Prize. It's a prize that awards mankind for making positive accomplishments that benefit others. 
My question to you is this. If you read your obituary today, how will you be remembered? What are they going to say about you? What kind of legacy are you leaving behind? Um, whenever I was 18 years old or 17, something like that, I graduated high school, and I never planned on being a pastor. I hated Christians, a bunch of fake, fake, phony hypocrites, couldn't stand it, never going to preach. But something deep inside my spirit said to go take a public speaking class. So I went across the street right there to Tech, 18 years old, and I took a public speaking class just for the fun of it. Everybody in there was older than me, and I loved the class. I had a good relationship with the professor. I got an A-plus in the class, believe it or not. I failed, what's that class you take where you do tools and stuff? I failed shop, but I got public speaking. Anyway, and so one of the last um, assignments we had was we had to write a eulogy and give it before the class. And we had to use somebody who was still alive. And the other kids in class, they did, you know, Michael Jackson when he was still alive. They did um, Michael Jordan or the president at the time or um, um, the, the famous computer guy, Bill Gates. I mean, they were drawing. So I thought, you know, I thought there's nobody I know better than myself. So I wrote my own eulogy and I gave it before the class. It was a hoot. I'm t- I got so many laughs. I remember I said, um, John Paul was a great guy. He died at the age of 103 leaving behind his supermodel wife who kept her figure after bearing him 21 children. I mean, the whole thing all worked out. (laughs) He started 21 Fortune 500 companies, gave each one of them to one of his kids, all this. Here's what I learned that day, that self-centered, selfish eulogy. I learned this. We are not remembered for what we got in life. We're going to be remembered for what we gave in life. And you can spend your whole life building your own kingdom, doing your own thing, getting, getting, getting for yourself. But let me tell you, one day when you get up in heaven and you get partial rewards and you look down on earth and you see those after you struggling because you did not fulfill your destiny, you're going to be very, very, very upset. So here's the question of the day. The question of the day is this. What is the greatest thing I can do for those who I leave behind? I'm going to tell you the answer to this question, and you're going to think, ah, that's just a Christian answer, but then I'm going to spend 12 to 15 minutes proving it to you, okay? The greatest thing that I can do for those who I leave behind, how many of you right now have a a, a wayward or a prodigal loved one, son, grandchild, um, daughter, somebody who you love that's in your life, and you're just praying for them, and they're just a prodigal right now. They're just not serving God like they should. Raise your hand. Let me see your hands like you really love this person and want them to go to heaven and have their life turned. Good. Okay, I'm going to tell all of you in here the greatest thing you can do for that person. Our our natural mind, at least with me, here's what I want to do. I want to bribe my kid. I have five and one of them's just, I want to bribe them. I want to say, I'll give you money if you come to church. I want to say, hear my wisdom. Let me tell you about my mistakes so you can learn from what I know. I want to say, hey, I'll make you a bet. If you come to church, and da-da, then I'll do this. For I want to do all these natural things that we think to try to force that person to change. But I'm going to tell you the greatest thing you can do for those who you love that come after you is this. Is for you to obey God and fulfill your destiny. Fulfill your purpose. Do what God called you to do. And I'm going to prove that to you for the next 12 minutes. Deuteronomy 7, 9 says, God is faithful. Everybody say faithful. Faithful. Aren't you glad we serve a faithful God who you can count on? We may not can count on each other all the time. We can always count on God. He will keep his, this is the most important phrase of today, 
covenant of mercy. Everybody say covenant of mercy. And show constant love to a thousand generations of those who obey him. Here's what it says. When you obey God, he has promised to take care of your seed and those that come after you. So out of all the people in the Bible God made a covenant of mercy with, which you can do this with God, one of my favorites is King David. King David was not a perfect man. He made a lot of mistakes, but he did his best to serve and love God. And in Psalms 89, God said, I have made a covenant of mercy with David established in the heavens. I'm going to protect his seed and show them loving kindness. Even if his descendants disobey me, I will show them mercy and never abandon them. David left his son Solomon billions of dollars, but he left him something far greater than money and property. He left him a covenant of mercy. Let me show you this covenant of mercy. 11 years after David died, he has been in heaven getting his eternal rewards and he looks down on earth. 11 years after he's dead, Solomon finally builds that temple, the one that David had prepared for him to build. At the closing of the temple, Solomon gives this beautiful dedication prayer. In 2 Chronicles 6, 42, he ends the prayer with this sentence, Oh God, remember the love and mercies that you promised my father David. At that moment when he said, my father David, fire came from heaven. The entire building filled with a dazzling light where people could not even see. No doubt, David touched the very heartstrings of God when he said, remember that my father loved you. Remember how my father served you. 23 years after David's dead, he's long gone, he's been in heaven hanging out with God. He looks down on earth and his son Solomon's making a whole bunch of mistakes. Solomon allowed some foreign women to, to talk him into worshiping their idols. In 1 Kings 11, 11, God said, Solomon, because you've disobeyed my commands, I should take the kingdom away from you. However, I will not do it for your father, David's sake. Do you see how one man's life of obedience is affecting generations that come after he's long gone and in heaven? 57 years after David died. Uh, Solomon's son, Jeroboam, this is David's great-grandson, or grandson, Jeroboam. 57 years David's been long gone. Jeroboam starts making a whole bunch of mistakes as well, turning his back on God, not doing the right thing like a lot of our prodigals are doing. In 1 Kings 15, 4, God said, Jeroboam, you deserve judgment nevertheless. I will not do it for my servant, David's sake. One more time again, we see God honoring the generations to come all because one man chose to obey him. 305 years. David's dead for 305 years. He is living up in heaven. He looks down and sees his great, great, great grandson, Hezekiah. Hezekiah's on the throne. He's a young guy. He's doing his best to serve God. But all of a sudden, this huge army comes and surrounds Israel and Jerusalem. It looks like the temple that Solomon built is going to be destroyed. It looks like they're goners. They're outnumbered 10 to 1. They don't know what to do. And Hezekiah says, God, I'm so lost. We're going to lose the throne. Israel's going to be defeated. Please, God, what are we going to do? Help us. And all of a sudden, just like that, one angel comes down from heaven, destroys 185,000 of the enemy troops in one second. I can see you know, Hezekiah's men you know, standing there with their spears and their swords and it's like something off of Guardians of the Galaxy or Marvel Avengers or something and they're holding it and all of a sudden and everyone's dead. 
Man, they start cheering and shouting and throwing a party and praising God and they're dancing and celebrating. And in the middle of the celebration, Hezekiah walks to the palace and he stands up on the rooftop and he says, God, today was amazing. I cannot believe your power, your glory, your omnipotent reach. You sent one angel to destroy 185,000 of our enemies. What in the world did we do to deserve something like that? And in 2 Kings 19.34, he said, Hezekiah, I'm going to protect this city because of the promise I made to my servant David. Here's what God said, Hezekiah, I love you, but I didn't do this for you. You see, 305 years ago, there was this man. He's one of your ancestors. He lived on earth. He didn't do everything perfect, but he really did his best to honor me. He served me. Every time he fell, he'd get back up again. Every time he looked like he was going to be defeated, he'd rise up in victory. This man loved me, and I made a covenant with him, and I told him if he would fulfill his purpose, if he would do his best to serve me, I would watch after the generations that came long after he's been gone. So Hezekiah, I didn't do this for you. I did this for my man, David. Here's the point I'm making. If you won't fulfill your destiny for yourself, at least do it for those who you leave behind. At least do it for the people that are going to come after you. Back in 1874 one of the members of the New York Prison Board noticed that there were six inmates in a New York prison who were all related somehow. So they did some research. They found the family line and they traced it back to the bloodline of a man named Max Jukes, who was born in 1720. Max was the town's troublemaker. He was an alcoholic. He had no integrity. He didn't believe in God. He never went to church. And he married a woman just like himself. They had a whole bunch of kids. And 1,200 of their descendants were studied. Of the descendants of Max Jukes, 310 were homeless. 180 were drug addicts and alcoholics. 160 were prostitutes. 150 were in prison. Seven of which for murder. They cost society millions of dollars, and never made one single positive contribution to the world. All rooting back from one man who decided he was just going to live however he wanted to live. But they researched another family, Jonathan Edwards' family. Jonathan Edwards was born in 1703. He felt the call of God in his life to be a pastor. He stepped out in ministry. He also became the president of Princeton University. Him and his wife Sarah had a whole bunch of kids, and 1,400 of their descendants were studying, among which 12 were college presidents, 65 were professors, 100 lawyers, 30 judges, 60 authors, 60 physicians, 80 governors, 2 U.S. senators, and 1 vice president of the United States. Here's what I want you to see. I want you to see the difference it makes when one person obeys God or when one person disobeys. One person who joins a local body, serves, gives, encourages, helps, and one person who lives for themselves, selfish, 
self-centered, all about them and their life. I want you to sit down. You may be here today and you look on your family tree and you see a bunch of nuts hanging out from your family tree. Your family may look like the Max Jukes family, okay? If your family looks like the Max Jukes family, today is a brand new day and you can be the one to start that covenant of mercy like David did. So when you're up in heaven getting your eternal rewards, you look down and see those that came after you doing better because of the life that you lived. I want to close with this story. I want to show you in the Bible. I showed you David and what happens when you honor God. Let me show you what happens when you dishonor him. God told King Saul. Remember, God chose Saul. He was a wise king. Everything was going fine. But every time God would ask Saul to do something, he would make excuses. He'd reason with God. You know, <clears throat> I find there's so many believers that, I'm not, I'm, and listen, we all fail and we all don't always honor God. But I know so many people that call themselves believers, but there's something in the Bible that they just say, well, this part isn't really for me. This part, you know, it's because of the day and the age we live in, so it's okay to, you know, this part. I'm not saying we follow it, but even if you don't follow the Bible 100%, which none of us do, at least have the attitude of the whole Bible is complete 100%, is directly from God and is full wisdom from me. Saul found a reason to just kind of play with it and not do exactly what God said. God told him in 1 Samuel 15.3, Saul, completely destroy the Amalekites. Do not spare anyone. Saul kept giving, God kept giving him a chance after chance. Man, every time God asked him to do something, come to church, use your talent, help that person, call your friend, encourage this one, go down to the altar, have a better attitude, be faithful, get there on time, be excellent at the workplace, honor your boss. Every time God said something to Saul, Saul found some kind of excuse. In 1 Samuel 15, verse 3, said completely destroy him, but in verse 9, Saul spared the king of Agag of Amalek. Do you know this was the last straw for God? God said, okay, I'm removing the throne from you. Saul got pushed off the throne. David became king. So Saul's children, Jonathan, never got to be in their rightful position. Their children were affected by Saul's decision. But I want to show you something so important. I want to show you what happens around the entire world when one person disobeys. Uh, Fast forward 300 years after this. Esther is in the palace. Everybody know Esther in the Bible? Queen Esther? She's having a hard time though. There's this man named Haman that's causing her all kind of trouble. Haman's trying to kill her uncle Mordecai. If you read the Bible in the book of Esther, Haman's killing the Jews, hanging them. All kind of bad things are happening. And the Bible says, if you look real close in Esther 3 verse 1, that Haman was a descendant of Agag. Here, Esther, 300 years later, trying to honor God, doing her best, and she's having all kinds of problems because Saul disobeyed. Fast forward 3,000 years from this date, and Adolf Hitler produces the Holocaust. Adolf Hitler was a descendant of Agag, whose seed will ultimately produce the Antichrist. Now let me show you something, the most important verse, that's the last scripture of today. In that story of Saul, when all this is going, how many of y'all got goosebumps? Man, I just felt it down my leg right there. <laughs> okay, in that story, there's a scripture I need you to memorize. 1 Samuel 15, 18, God gave Saul the power to defeat the enemy, but he disobeyed. 
if Saul had only defeated the enemy in his life that God gave him the power to defeat, billions of lives could have been changed. Millions could have been spared. The whole world would have been better if Saul had just got the power that God gave him and used it to defeat them. Here's my question to you. Is there an enemy in your life today? Pornography, selfishness, pride. Is there an enemy? Laziness, stingy. Is there an enemy in your life today that if you don't defeat before you die, you'll look down from heaven 500 years from now and see somebody struggling because you failed to fulfill your God-given destiny. Man, that's a stinking good sermon. Y'all need to get out of your underwear and come, I mean, put stuff over your underwear and come to church. Don't get out of your underwear and come to church. Put stuff over your underwear and come to church. Okay, so here's what I want. Here's what I want. We're going to edit all that out. The live version's way better. Okay, listen, here's what I want. Forget the 500 years from now with Agag. Forget that. I want 305 years from now for one of my relatives to be in a battle, battling cancer, poverty, something, something's going on in their life. And they say, God, we don't know what to do. We've tried everything. Medicine, doctors, friends, family. We've done everything we can do. We don't know how we're going to get out of this. And all of a sudden, this angel flies down, does this great miracle in their life. My relatives standing in the hallway of a hospital saying, God, I can't believe this. The doctors are, 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 are confused. They don't know what to say. They've never seen anything like this. What in the world did we do to deserve that miracle? And God says, I love you, but I didn't do this for you. There's this man, he wasn't perfect. But every time he got knocked down, he got back up again. Every time he felt defeated, he rose up in victory. Every time he felt like giving up, he would stay faithful. This man, I made him a promise. I promised him that if he would do his best to honor me, I would always watch after the generations to come. And I love you, but I didn't do this for you. I did this. For my man, John Paul. That's the legacy that I want to leave. 